recap, now that the mic's working, hopefully, is we saw God took a treaty format that the people were very familiar with, and He said, now I'm going to do one with you that shows the reality. I'm the true king. You're not serving another Lord. You're serving the Lord. You're not entering into another political alliance. You're entering into the covenant identity. And so God does this throughout Scripture. He takes, remember, Scripture's not written outside of time. It's not like other holy books where it takes place in, you know, this unnamed, unknown part of history and it's just always eternal. No, it's a development through time and God enters into history and deals with people in history and He does it in their cultures. And their cultures change and ebb and flow and God enters into and does things in their culture. You remember Paul when he's in Athens. He goes to the Areopagus. He sees all these temples and idols and everything. What does he do? He enters into their culture by picking the temple of the unknown God that they had erected and saying, hey, that's what I want to talk to you about. You worship this unknown God, let me tell you His name. And then he goes on to give the message of the Gospel. He used the cultural concept in order to preach or to, to communicate the message of God. God's always done that. He's done it all the way back to Genesis 1. The, the creation accounts that we looked at way back, those of you that were here five years ago, he did the, the, generation, the, the Genesis accounts are, are based structurally around similar creation accounts in the ancient world, but where they get it wrong, what God does through the Genesis account is says, let me tell you the real story. And if you ever read C.S. Lewis, he was big on this because he studied ancient myths and it was his, I mean, that was his PhD was mythology. And he said, you can hear in all the myths of the ancient world and all the legends and the fables, you can hear echoes of the Gospel. You can hear, it's like seeds that God planted in all these different cultures that when they grew, when the Gospel was presented, they would be like, aha, that makes sense to us. We have a concept that we can understand this relationship in because of our cultural surroundings. And God does that with every culture. Every culture has touchstones and has points of connection that the gospel can bridge. So what we're doing when we read Genesis or when we read Deuteronomy is we have to keep that in mind. And the reason I beat this horse to death is because it needs to be, because this doesn't get preached in pulpits a lot because it's just considered academic or scholarship or you know not, not as important. Let's get to the, the application. But you can't get to the application until you understand the original setting and the original context. So that's why we're taking these three weeks in this blessing curses section because it's so different than what we know of. And it's also not what we think the Bible should be about. If we're honest, we think the Bible should be God's rule book for us and has some nice promises and it gives us a little pep in our day when we want a devotional. You've never read this chapter as a devotional. If you have, I'm, I'd be, I will put money on the fact. And I may lose some money because there may be some weird people in here like me. But if I'm a betting person and these are Vegas odds, I'm going to put all my money on the fact that you have never, ever done a devotional from Deuteronomy chapter 28, second half of the chapter. Ever. And that's why we're going to cover this in this Bible study because that's what we do. We read the passages that people ignore that are either boring or weird or gross. This was definitely weird, definitely gross. So I hope you enjoyed your lunch and I hope you can keep it down because it's about to get really gross and if you don't like it, you're going to have to take it up with God because He put it in Scripture. And so what we're reading in this curses section, Moses has given Israel, this is the curse, this is going to happen if you abandon God, if you turn to go after other suzerains, other kings, and serve them as their vassal, 
then the great king who you've entered into this agreement with is going to come against you. And when he does, it is going to be a nightmare. This is what every covenant curse would contain in the ancient world. You don't want to tick off the sovereign suzerain who you've just pledged your allegiance to. So God's going to tell (coughs) through Moses, here's what to expect. And we saw last week all of these covenant curses about the land being dried up and the rain not falling and you know, the, the crops being cursed and the fruit of the womb being cursed, not having kids and bearing children and all these covenant blessings that God wanted, the cursing if they abandon God is the, result, the reversal of those things. The reversal of the creation covenant, the reversal of the Noah covenant, the reversal of the Abrahamic covenant, the reversal of the Sinai covenant. Everything is just getting undone. Now it's going to get specific. Because remember, Israel came out of Egypt as slaves into Canaan to be God's rule of judgment on the Canaanites who were there to drive their religion out of the region in order to establish Israel, the covenant people, the covenant belief system in the land so that all nations would be drawn to it. It's about replacing ideologies and replacing idolatry with covenant worship. So if Israel turns to the idolatry that they were supposed to be the substitute for, then that's when things, the whole plan goes off the rails. And they're going to do it, if they do it in the land, then they forfeit the right to stay in that land. All the way back to Leviticus. Think back to the Holiness Code two years ago. God said, if you do, like the people in the land are doing, the land will what? Vomit you out. Just like it's vomiting out them. So this is the precedent that God set. So He goes and He gives these covenant curses and it says, therefore, verse 48, Chapter 28, Therefore in hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until He has destroyed you. And an iron yoke, if you've ever seen cow, a yoke is what you hook on a cow's neck or a bull's neck, an ox, and it plows, it drags. It's just a thing that... So an iron yoke, right? Those are super heavy. And it's just brutal, miserable. So God says, verse 49, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you're destroyed. They will leave you no new grain, no new wine or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs or flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. So Israel, if you trust in yourself and your might and the the gods of the land that you're going into, and you live in these big fortified cities that you didn't build, by the way, that God is giving you through your conquest, if you trust in that, then all of that's going to be attacked. God's saying, and He's going to bring in a people from far away to do it. Now this happens twice in ancient Israel's history. Old Testament Israel's history. Twice first time the Assyrians they come and they do it to all of the cities in northern Israel and uh, they end up besieging the city of Samaria you can read about that in 2nd Kings 17 they surround and and Samaria Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom Israel this is way in the future and they'll besiege it and literally just camp around the city and wait that's how you did siege warfare you just wait And as long as they don't have a natural spring inside the city and any way to get food, the people are going to end up starving to death. And they'll surrender or they'll die. Either way, you don't have to fight a battle. So that's what you do as an army. You just wait. 
well, it happened to Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel falls. And then it's going to happen again. Uh, 2 Kings 25, it happens to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem itself and Judah. So two times by a different group. This time they're the Babylonians. So at two different points in Israel's history, this covenant curse is going to happen. And it's going to happen because Israel does exactly what the previous chapters have said not to do. So much exactness is in these uh, accounts that people have said, oh, well, this Deuteronomy stuff has to have been written after the fact. It describes it too perfectly. Or Moses is a prophet. Or God knows what His people are going to do and can communicate that before time. It goes on to say, so the first thing they're going to experience, the siege is going to be famine. This army, if they disobey, then this army is going to come in and it's just going to rout the land and all the resources and everything and there's famine. Famine, people hold up in a city, desperate, gets ugly. Verse 53, because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, not the fruit of the vine, not the fruit of your offspring, I mean of your uh, livestock, not the fruit of the trees of the field. No, the fruit of your womb. You will resort to cannibalism. And this is not just an idle threat. This is what happens in every siege that's accounted for in Scripture and outside of Scripture. People resorted to cannibalism. Josephus records it. You can read his account of Jerusalem sieged under Rome. Horrible, horrible account. You can read 2 Kings' account. You can read Jeremiah talking about it. He goes on to say, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children, and he will not give to any of them the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all he has left because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of all your cities. The most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her feet, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege and in the distress that your enemy will inflict on your cities." This is the horrendous accounts of siege, famine, desperation. Where people are so desperate for food, they've already passed the point of eating. Like, like people in siege times would take their sandals and boil the leather and drink that to get some nutrients. They would take bark from trees and boil it in water and drink that to get some of the nutrients. People would make mud cakes, literal mud cakes, and eat them in order to put something in their stomach to stop the hunger pains. Famine is horrendous. Look at pictures today coming out of Yemen. One of the worst famines in the history of the world right now is taking place in Yemen where people are just literally walking around skeletons, skin and bones. And it's because of warfare. It's man-made famine. It's denying the resources in order to cripple and starve a people to death. So during those times, what he's saying is he's given a vivid, visceral, disgusting picture of, of even a husband who instead of, like you would think, I've got to provide for my wife and my kids and my family and give them something to eat, the husband is saying, no, I'm going to keep it for me. And on top of that, as if that weren't bad enough, the food that he's keeping from them is his dead child. You see the horror in this picture? The same with the women. We're begrudging the woman who says, normally a woman who's so dainty she wouldn't even let the sole of her feet touch the ground. He's talking about high class. 
very proper, very petite, very well-to-do, very nice, in this level of distress, she will secretly hide her own dead child and her own afterbirth in order to eat them herself to survive rather than sharing with her family and friends. It's the most horrible, vivid, awful account you can think of. This is why when Jesus was looking to the destruction of Jerusalem in the Sermon on in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25 in there, and He said, He looked and He saw what was going to happen to Jerusalem and it was going to be another siege. And it was going to be at the hands of Rome this time instead of Babylon. So He used images that describe the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem drawn from the prophets to describe what would be in the future Rome's destruction of Jerusalem. And He said, it will be the suffering in those days. Pray that there are no pregnant women. It will be worse than has ever been before and ever will be again. Lo and behold, when you read Josephus' account of the siege of Jerusalem, he uses almost that exact same imagery to describe the horrors, what actually happens during the siege. And so again, this language, Deuteronomy 28 is the covenant curse saying, look, if you abandon the covenant, this is the fate that awaits. Because I'm going to lift my divine protection from you. You're going to experience the brunt of what it is to be like one of the other nations without God's, uh, not just His physical protection, but His ethical, without any you know, ethical, moral influence whatsoever. You've degraded yourself completely and God's going to, what does Romans say? Give you over. To the sinfulness. And when that happens, it just becomes this snowball effect into the worst behaviors you can imagine. That's what Deuteronomy 28, Moses is putting before the people vividly. Why? So that they won't go that way. That's the point of these covenant curses is to warn the people not to go that way. These aren't inevitable at this point in history. It's not like it's going to have to happen. God is giving Israel the chance and saying keep loyal to the covenant and this won't happen same with the prophets they come they preach they rebuke they paint these awful pictures of judgment and we're like geez why are they so angry why is god you know just saying this is what's going to happen no they're doing it so that in hopes that the people will turn back to god it's the number one theme of all the prophets and all the bible one word shuv turn turn it's translated return repent turn turn back. It's the Hebrew word shuv and it means come back. And it's what Deuteronomy 28, 27, 28, this whole section is built on. God doesn't want this to happen. I mean, He's warning the people viscerally, graphically, just like you would expect in every other ancient Near East treaty, covenant, curse, ceremony. So after, first there's famine. That leads to siege. Then the siege leads to disease. Pestilence. These follow right in order. Verse 58, if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh, your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe lingering illnesses. He will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky, Abrahamic promise, will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please Him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. This is a reversal 
It's using the languages, you know, just as God was pleased to. It means just as He chose to do this, He's going to choose to do this. You don't get the blessings without the curses uh, if you enter into a covenant relationship. It's a very serious thing, and these stipulations are literally life and death. So then after pestilence has wracked a copulation, then the only thing that remains is total destruction. And it says, verse 64, Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You'll live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you'll say, if only it were morning. Because the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey I said you should never make again. There you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. Ironic, because that's what they were. But no one will buy you. So finally, resulting in total desperation, I'll just sell myself back to slavery in Egypt. Back to where the curse, the covenant people identity began. And God's saying, even they won't buy you. So this is, this is the darkest chapter in Deuteronomy. This is the, 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 the most heinous, disgusting passage in the Bible, and it's intended to be. It's not intended to be sugar-coated. It's not intended to be just, okay, let's get past this so we can get back to the good part. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Cures don't, aren't, you don't rejoice at a cure until you know the depth of the disease. And so this is God saying, this is the depth of what breaking the covenant will entail. Don't go that route. Moses pleading with Israel. This is his final speech. This is his last speech he's going to give to Israel before he dies. As an old man now. He's 120 years old. And this is it. And so he, boy, he's got his brush out and he's painting a gory, vivid, horrendous picture in hopes that they won't go down that route. The problem is we have hindsight and we know that Israel does go down this route. Later, centuries later, Jeremiah, when he's talking, looking at uh, Jerusalem, is about to be destroyed. All of these prophecies are about to happen. <clears throat> and Jeremiah, this is chapter 19, Jeremiah gives a sermon. Now, Jeremiah, this is, again, centuries after these events. Um, and it's already, the siege in Samaria has already happened. So Israel, Judah, looked to Samaria. They saw the horror of their siege. You can read all about people eating their offspring and you know, selling carcasses of dead animals that were unclean for exorbitant amounts just because of the new, to, to have something to eat. I mean, just all kinds of horrible conditions. Read 2 Kings chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> but Jeremiah's give, give a message. God's given him a message to preach to Judah because it is almost, they are almost beyond all hope. There's going to come a point in the book of Jeremiah, it's the longest book in the Bible, not, not other than Psalms, there's going to come a point where God tells Jeremiah, preach, 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 giving them a chance, turn, 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 and then there's a point in the book where God, the people don't, and God says, Jeremiah, now your preaching is for no other purpose than to condemn them for future generations. Because their chance for repentance is gone. It's beyond the point of no return. They are gone. Now your preaching is going to be for future generations to see what has happened in the hardness of these people's hearts. And so Jeremiah has this ministry of just horrible, 
just he's the weeping prophet because he's having to preach to people that he already knows because God has told him they're not going to listen to you. They're actually going to attack you. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to throw you in a pit. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. But you're going to be alive through all this and you're going to see all of this disaster happen. Think about that before you ever name your kid Jeremiah, by the way. It's a, it's a very, very heavy, heavy name. Uh, not a bad name, just know that. <laughs> it's not a nice, happy one. Jeremiah, we'll finish with this sermon. This is Jeremiah chapter 19. He is preaching to Israel and he says, God gives him a, a, a little children's sermon thing, right? Children's time, you bring out an object, you do an object lesson, and it puts it in kids' minds, and then they can always remember it. So God's going to give Jeremiah an object lesson. He says, verse chapter 19, This is what the Lord says, Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and the priests. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the valley of Gehenna. That's the word Jesus used for hell. It's a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Today it's a highway hellish traffic, <laughs> but uh, it's hell, Ben-Hinnom, near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew. They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention nor did it ever enter my mind. This is all the stuff that they would do in the valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. This is why Jesus chose that as the image when He wanted to tell somebody what hell was going to be like. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. In this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies. At the hands of those who seek their lives, I will give their carcasses as food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I will devastate this city and make it an object of scorn. All who pass by will be appalled, will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh during the stress of the siege imposed on them by the enemies who seek their lives. Then, God's telling him what to do, then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And they'll bury the dead in Topheth this area, until there's no more room. This is what I will do to this place and those who live there, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topheth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place. Topheth, all the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah then returned from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I'm going to bring on the city and villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. Jeremiah is basically telling Israel, hey, time's up. Deuteronomy 28 is about to happen and it's happening now. In the next chapter, he's immediately persecuted by the people who are saying, no, this is the temple of the Lord. We've got God on our side. We, the temple's here. Look at this. We still do sacrifices. We still do offerings. Our money says in God we trust on it. 
Uh, you know, they didn't say that, but it's that kind of notion. Like, we were godly people. And Jeremiah is saying, no, no, you've become Canaanites. And you're about to experience what it's like when you become Canaanite. So this happened in Israel's history. The sad thing, again, Jesus, 500 years after Jeremiah, 400 years after Jeremiah, looking at Jerusalem, they're about to put Jesus to death. Same leaders of the same city. And he's looking at the city and he weeps over the city. Because once again, they are going to be rejecting the, the what was Jesus' message? Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Just like the prophets. They're going to reject that message. And so the city of Jerusalem, Jesus looks at it and he says, this is what you can expect. And he gives the Olivet Discourse. And he, pinpoint, with pinpoint precision, describes the conditions that are going to happen when Rome comes in and does to Jerusalem what Babylon came in and did to Jeremiah's Jerusalem. And he's going to use language from the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to describe the fall of Jerusalem once again. And so you see this cyclical effect throughout history. Whenever people abandon the covenant, when they turn away from the covenant, when they reject the covenant that they have entered into, then the covenant curses are in effect. They've removed themselves from that protection. And so this is what Jesus wept for. This is what Moses right here in his address is weeping over. No doubt there are tears in his eyes when he's telling the people of this. He's not wanting to see it happen. And sadly, the history of Israel will be a history of it happening over and over and over again. And so the problem will remain until the end of the Old Testament and then it'll be, okay, how many more times are we going to have to be on this roller coaster? And that's when God's going to say, now is the time. I am going to do what has never been done before. I'm going to actually step into this story as a player. I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to do what the law, I'm going to absorb the full curse of the law on myself so that now after this last destruction and exile, the law's curse has been absorbed on me totally. Anyone who is in me now is free from that curse. Anyone who's in me now is free from all of that fear and the, you know, everything. So it's this whole huge, huge turning point in the history of redemption with the coming of the Gospel. But at this point, this is what God's people are being warned. So whenever you read the prophets after Deuteronomy 28, when you read the prophets and they're always talking about these punishments, keep in mind what you heard in Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26 is the previous version. In Deuteronomy 28 is the next generation's version, but it's the same thing. And you'll hear the echoes in the prophets whenever they're rebuking Israel. You'll hear the echoes from these covenant curses. And you'll see it, this, this inevitable like downfall of Israel in their terms of their behavior. And the prophets coming time and time again saying, turn back, turn back, it's not too late, turn back, it's not too late, turn back, until it is too late. And happy Tuesday, everybody. <laughs> we got to end it here next week we'll come back we're going to uh, look at the covenant renewal ceremony it's going to be great there's a lot of food left but remember you got to see the dark parts of scripture in order to be able to appreciate the light in a fuller extent and that's what you got today have a great week